Good morning. Thankful that God continues to allow us to meet in this way, considering the situation. Uh, I want to begin with prayer, not just for ourselves, but also for everyone in the world. I've been uh, observing, I've been watching the website of John Hopkins. They have a website for coronavirus update. It says that there is about 7,000 cases around the world. A little less than 32,000 people have died. But thankfully, about 145,000 people have recovered. The panic is real. There was this article that um, Wall Street Journal wrote saying that is the ground fertile for a great awakening. They recognized that the situation is not just physical, but it's also spiritual. The real impact is eternal. So my prayer is that in this immediate threat of the physical death or even sickness, that this reality of eternity will not cloud us, that there are many who are uh, on the way to eternity without Christ. And so we would pray for them. And that as Christ follows, that I would say that that we would be sensible and self-quarantining ourselves because we love our neighbors, and yet that it would not prohibit ourselves, that we would not prohibit ourselves from selflessly serving with mercy and grace. So will you join me in prayer? Father, we, we pray for the sick. We pray for the families who've lost dear ones and in often cases are not able to uh, give them a proper funeral. Uh, we pray uh, for our leaders for discernment. We pray for our medical practitioners and researchers for wisdom and for guidance. And we pray for all of us that this would be a time of stilling of our soul before our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this would be a time where people will turn to you and that we will find that they will find Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, amen, amen. Just wanna quickly review what we did last week. We were trying to answer this question, how not to be a scared and a selfish Christian. Last week we saw what it means not to be scared. We saw from the life of King Jehoshaphat from Second Chronicles chapter 20, there, was the, there were these enemies that were coming and uh, he didn't know what to do. Our key verse was verse 12, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, where he says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And we saw verse 15, where the Lord said, the Lord, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord's the one who's going to do the battle for us. And so we learned that we're not in control, but thankfully, God is. And so this week, we want to see how not to be a selfish Christian. Or if I could give it a positive spin, how can I be a neighbor to someone? And so the title today is What to Do When I Know What to Do. I, I don't intend it to be a, a cute play on words from last week, but as I was studying this, I began to realize that these are things that we know. The question then is, what are we going to do about it? How is that going to impact us. And so the passage that we have before us today is from Luke chapter 20, verses 25 to 37. And our key verse is verse 36, 
this is the parable about, of the Good Samaritan, verse 36 says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? That's the key phrase I want us to remember. Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. So it's time for some neighborology. I've been wanting to say that, so thank you. Uh, what we want to uh, do is, as we look at this, the, the passage before us, I'm going to divide that into three parts. One is the, the first passage is lawyer's question. Uh, the second is the Lord's lesson. And the third is love's mission. So first, let's look at the lawyer's question, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to test, that is, put Jesus to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that is Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, that's the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer asks a question. In fact, he asks two questions. The first question he asks is, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds by asking him a question, saying, what is written in the law? You are the expert. How do you interpret it? How do you read it? What's your spin on it? What's your take on it? And the lawyer answers correctly. You see, the expected answer should have been uh, law of circumcision, for example. That's a very unique covenant with the, uh, with the Jewish nation. Or it could be the law of Sabbath. Or it could be the law of scriptures, you know, the Torah, because they knew this was in spite of God. This is of God. But instead, he correctly, he combines two different parts of the law, and he summarizes the law. He brings it together. That's what we saw in verse 27, that love for God and love for the neighbor. And these two scriptures actually come. The first scripture is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, which is the Shema, which the Jews pray in the morning and in the evening. And we read there in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second part that the lawyer brings in is from Leviticus 19.18. And the latter part says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, that's exactly what Jesus would tell another lawyer who would ask, what is the greatest commandment? And he says this in Matthew chapter 22 and Luke chapter 12, we read about it. But I think it's important that we take some time to pause and to understand the summary of the law because it brings to us the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. Jesus actually says the summary, these two, the love for God and love for people, are the two things on which hangs all the law and the prophets. And so we got to understand this properly before we can move on to the parable that is 
before us. So let me read to you verse 27 again. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure whether you noticed, but there are three kinds of love there, isn't it? There's the love for God, and then you have the love for the neighbor, and love for yourself. I think that's a strange idea. The first two loves we can understand. Love for God, I mean, we, love, we must love God preeminently. He must be the priority. He must have the priority. He must be the first that we love. And loving the neighbor, we understand that. But what does that mean to love uh, the neighbor as ourself? What kind of self-love is this? So what I want to do is I want to present these three loves, as it were, as three points of a triangle. Right on top is the love for God. And then you have the neighborly love and the self-love. You see, the self-love, it comes naturally to us. And it's often considered dangerous. And yet it seems like Jesus is not condemning this kind of love. He's actually commending this kind of self-love and implying, therefore, that there is another kind of self-love. There is this one kind of self-love which is inward-looking, which is selfish, which is self-focused, which is self-absorbed. Like, I'm the center of the universe. Uh, This kind of dangerous self-love manifests itself in two ways, sadly, in a fallen world that we live. You see, one is this, one end of that this kind of self-love is this self-destroying obsession. Something's happened in the past or some experiences, it feels like nothing's working out for them. And so they turn on themselves. They're obsessed with their self, but it's almost like a self-hate. This is about destroying yourself, but you are made in the image of God. But that self-hate is so possessive, so dangerous. But the other end of the spectrum on this, on this kind of self-love is this self-glorifying uh, where, you know, there's a sense that you are the, uh, you're God's gift to mankind. And, and it's all about you. And you, you, you want them to, as it were, uh, bow down to the image of yourself. Well, that's bad. The, the, the first end of the spectrum is destroying yourself and these, the other end of that kind of love is uh, destroying relationships. But I want to I say that there is another kind of self-love. The, that kind of self-love is the one that is upward focused and, and it's God glorifying. The first part we read, uh, there, is a, there is a verse in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 which says men who are lovers of their of the men who are lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful and unholy that's one kind of self love that's not what jesus is referring to but he's referring to this upward focused god glorifying self love which is self care there's this accountability to god there is a sense that this life, this my life belongs to God, your life belongs to God, and that we are only stewards of this life. And this idea is further flushed out as we get to the epistles. For example, in 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, you're not your own, meaning your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Uh, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's a kind of love where you understand your worth as a person, as God sees you. It's a kind of love that flows when God is preeminent. When he is the love that you love, then it's possible for you to love yourself and then love your neighbor. It's a kind of love that does not seek to be reciprocated. It doesn't, doesn't matter if, if, it doesn't love, if what you love doesn't love back. I'll give you an example. You know, for example, your, your body, when you're sick, you seem to care for it more. And that's the kind of loving neighbors as yourself. That when you, when you see someone in need, the kind of care that you would give yourself is the love with which, with, with which you love your neighbor. That's, a, that's the demand of love. And that, uh, that when we love Jesus, we love ourselves, that we can attend to the neighbors as we attend to ourselves. We get to another example I can think of is in Ephesians chapter five, the command to the husbands to love their wives as their own selves. You see, to love your wife with who's the closest neighbor and to love as your own body. So listen to this. It says, a love that loves God preeminently will love self and others properly. Let me read that to you again. It's important that we understand that love for God, how it transforms these two love. It loves God preeminently. When you love God preeminently, you love yourself and others properly. James 2.8 calls this the royal love. It's this double-edged summary of the law, love for God and love for the neighbors that is what Jesus is commanding. Think about it. I think I, I, I do want to say this too. Think about it. Now, if there is no love for God and you want to love your neighbor without loving God, it can get you into trouble. It's a dangerous kind of love. It's what might be even called lust. Or if you love yourself without loving God, then it's the self-obsession, which is the dangerous kind of love. You got to have the love of God to love yourself right and to love your neighbor right. And, and what Jesus is trying to say and what Jesus is commanding is that these two loves, the love of God and the love of your neighbor, they can be distinguished. That is, they are separate. Uh, that they are different, but they cannot be separated. That is, they can be distinguished, but cannot be separated. That is, they are two different, love for God and love for man. But one cannot come without the other. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so we have the second question at this point. Who is my neighbor? In verse 29, he wants to justify himself. And he asks this question, who is my lawyer? And Jesus now presents 
the parable. We have now the Lord's lesson, the second part. This is from verses 30 to 35. Let me read to you. Let me read from 29 itself. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So what we have besides the robbers, the main characters, one is the man. He is nameless, he's voiceless, but he's beaten, he's left unattended, but he gets this unlikely help from someone who he considers an inferior and an enemy. Then there's this priest. He's the one who represents man to God, prays on behalf of man to God, this vertical connection. But he crosses the street and avoids responsibility. I don't know if the priest even thought this, saying that, hey, listen, I need to go, but I'll pray for you at the temple once I get there, but don't ask me to get involved. Uh, James catches the sentiment really well because he writes in James chapter 2, verse 16, James 2, 16, we read this. And if one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the priest walks to the other side. Then you have the Levite who represents those who serve the society, the horizontal, if you would, and he too crosses the street. He's unwilling to care. And then comes a Samaritan, the one who's despised. In fact, as you know, or you may have heard, the Jews in, would, would go uh, around the border of Samaria to get to the other side. But as you look at the flow of the sentence, it indicates, it seems like the good Samaritan or the Samaritan was on the other side of the road and he actually crosses over to approach him. He gets involved. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't expected. It proves costly to him. But in our current language, what it did was Christ-like. And at this point, Jesus turns to the lesson because the whole point of the story is how is this going to affect you? And we have said this to ourselves many times that we will commit ourselves that when we hear God's word, that we will not hear it without this desire to transform us radically. If not, then we are just like that priest or the Levite who crosses the street to the other side when confronted by God's word and uh, just because it's inconvenient or it's out of our comfort zone. You see, the real truth is God's word is the real inconvenient truth. And so what are we going to do 
about it. And that brings us to the third part, the love's mission, verses 36 to 37. Let me read that to you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor, there again, to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Wanted to notice that again, right? Proved to be a neighbor. You see, the Lord, the Lord turns the lawyer's question on, a, on its head. The answer is, in fact, a question. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? So Jesus is not answering that, but Jesus is saying, who will you be a neighbor to? Um, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ because he demonstrates it's, it best. He's the greatest example. But if I were to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and simply uh, have this parable superimposed and to say that this is about Jesus, then in two ways I violate uh, the message. One is it violates the grandness of the gospel, of the work of, the, of, of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. There is more in contrast than there is in comparison to this parable of Good Samaritan and the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, I want us to understand, first, Jesus did not take a detour like the Samaritan. Jesus wasn't just passing through when he found us. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says he came seeking. He came looking for you to rescue you. That's the first thing. The second I want us to understand that it was Jesus who was stripped off his clothes. He was beaten and he was even killed. And not just, he, so Jesus is not just this good Samaritan who comes to rescue you, but he is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for you. John chapter 10, verse 11. And thankfully by his stripes, we are healed. We read that in Isaiah chapter 53, verse five. And the third difference I see is that Jesus is not taking us to an inn by the way, but he takes us home to be with him forever. John chapter 14, verse 3. But the fourth difference just gets me. You see, this good Samaritan had no filial relationship with this half-dead man. He had no relationship, nothing whatsoever. But for Christ, we become the most cherished possession. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1. We are, we are his family. He adopts us into his family. That's what he does. That's what Jesus does. And so, so if you haven't been rescued by this grand Savior, the Good Samaritan, I hope that today as you read through and you understand that there is God who came down and rescue of you, that you will confess your, the depraved situation, your current situation of your sin, understanding that, that you need rescue. Call out to him, call out to Jesus, and he will come, for he alone can save you from your sins. But if you have received this gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are the recipient of this divine rescue, if you are part of the family, then this, this parable is directly 
applying to you. It's important. This question in verse 36 must be answered by you. How will you prove to be a neighbor, especially given the current circumstances? How will you be Christ-like neighbor to those around you? I want to say to you, the clearest indication that you believe in Jesus Christ is when your selfish desire to be served, when you want people to just serve you, that becomes, that's overcome by this Christ-like desire to serve. You will love others just like you yourself, uh, just like you love yourself, sorry, because God's love has transformed you. God's love transforms you. And so you have this perspective of what it means to be loved, and then you love others. It answers Cain's question. You are your brother's keeper. This loving God cannot come independently of not loving others. In fact, it's what differentiates the goats and the sheep, the the imagery that Jesus gives about the last day in Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus says how you responded to others when he was hungry, when, or when they were hungry, or they were thirsty, or they were strangers, or they were naked, or they were sick. And to those who responded well, he says this in verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And for those who did not care, who were just uh, self-obsessed, in verse 45 we read, the king will answer, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So then the question in the theme of this, of this sermon. What will you do when you know what to do? What will you do when you know what to do? That's the demand on a Christian. The demand is that what God the Father required of his son is what's demanded of you, your life. In 1 John chapter 3, 16, we read, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ouch, that hurts, doesn't it? We uh, sometimes make Christianity just about salvation for ourselves. We say we love you, God, but we have no expression of it towards our neighbors. So this week, when you find yourself on the Jericho Road, might be, you know, getting out, it might be over the telephone or maybe online, whatever way that you find yourself on this Jericho Road where you will find someone who's in need, someone who needs a Samaritan's help. Would you show mercy? Because that's what verse 36, 37 says. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Show the love of God, even when you have judged that they don't deserve it. 
but because you have been a recipient of God's love. And God has taught you what is proper self-love. You now love your neighbor. I want to give you some practical tips. Let's get back to that triangle and where we see these three points, the love for God. I want you to think of it as compassion. I want you to pray for encouragement. Many are bruised or broken who are in need for prayer and for care. And only those who have experienced agape love can share this God, God's love to people. We pray that uh, just as you have been rescued, that God will rescue these people eternally. There's so many who are at the death throes. I'm not sure whether you know personally of anyone or of families who've been affected. Would you pray for their salvation? Would you cry out to God on their behalf and say to God, oh God, may this be times when they will turn to you, forsake their sins and be healed by you because of the stripes of your son. The second point is the the self-love, the self-care. And I want you to think of it as cheer. I want us to, again, be careful, not to confuse self-care with self-absorption. You see, this, this love for ourself must be rooted in the love for God. And so take time to, uh, you know, what I want to call the theology of exercise. Exercise, if you would. Sign up online courses. Do something to to develop and to, um, to transform in terms of your skill set. Uh, you could have a family gym, for example, and all of you turn on a video and have a gym together. Keep that cheer going, especially when we are isolated. We are, we are social beings and this is not really helping. And so, so remember that even for your neighbors. They need such emotional help within the family and those around. Social distancing is not helping people. You would have, you would have read reports of, of uh, domestic violence increasing. You would have had, uh, read reports of, of increased uh, risk of depression. Give them a call, talk to them, chat with them, turn on the video, speak with them, let them see you. Drive by, say hi to them, though you keep that distance. There are some who are financially struggling. Uh, help them if you know who they are. Uh, let's come together as a church to help. Uh, there may be material needs, people who are uh, shut-ins, who might need help with grocery. And, you know, these are good, uh, good opportunities. So make a list, make a list of those who God brings to your mind to pray for the salvation. Make a list of those who might need help, people who might need, uh, uh, schedule your calls, talk to them. Uh, remember, you know, this is a good time. I must say this, your online etiquette. You see, let's not be a fear monger. There's too many news, which is fake news circulating. So let's not add to the confusion. Let's be one who is caring and who's praying. Let that be our digital footprint, if you would.
and let's pray that these neighbors, the ones who uh, are found on the Jericho Road, that they'll be brought home to be part of the family. That's what Jesus does, doesn't he? He, he, he doesn't just care for you and leave you where you are or at the end, but he brings you, brings you home, brings them home, makes you part of the family. And I pray and I pray and I pray this that this week and the days that God gives us, especially through this trying times, that we will be a channel of God's blessing to this anxious and to this dying world. Okay, five seconds. Dearly beloved of the Lord, I'll be praying for you as a church will be praying together. And we pray that this would be real for us, that we would move from the skewed self-love to a God-glorified, God-preeminent love for our neighbors like ourselves. May this be true for us, for all of our children, for us as families. Father, we thank you that in you, we can love our neighbors. In you, we understand what it, what it means to have been rescued by your son. Because we are in you, we are part of the family of God, adopted. We had no business to be part of your family. But because of what your son has done, because of his rescue for us, for, this, for the death that he died on the cross, uh, paying for our sins, we are alive today, physically and spiritually. But I pray, of oh God, that uh, in these moments of challenges, these days of challenge, challenges that you've given us, we will be ones who are witness ones who are channels of God's blessing to people around us. We ask this in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. May the presence, the, the joy, the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the sweet, comfort, and companion of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us as as families, as as countries, as as those who have bereaved, uh, bereaving for their lost ones, us who are sick, may the presence of our God be their portion of blessing in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen.